0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.
1: Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews. It's been six months since South Africa went into lockdown to stem the spread of COVID-19. As the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Centre indicates, at least one million people have now died. South Africa has the 10th highest official number of COVID infections in the world, with more than 670,000 people having tested positive for the disease. Around 16,400 people in South Africa have COVID-19 on their death certificates, The US has the highest number of reported deaths at 205,000. In this episode of Inside COVID-19, we reflect on the development of the disease that has turned our lives upside down and put the South African economy into ICU. We hear from Western Cape Premier Alan Windy on the COVID-19 deaths in the province and look at the people who have been infected with COVID-19 twice. We hear from Nick Hudson, outspoken member of PANDA, a think tank of actuaries, mathematicians and other professionals who have identified holes in COVID-19 models that have informed government policy. One of the consequences of the focus on coping with COVID-19 has been that many people with other medical problems have not received treatment. Paediatric specialist Dr Andre Hutting, who has been helping children who need urgent medical attention, speaks to Business reporter Linda van Tilburg. Last but not least... We hear from Discovery co-founder Adrian Gore, who shared his thoughts early on in the pandemic on how to cope and to find opportunities in periods of great negativity. First, the COVID-19 headlines. Global confirmed deaths hit 1 million as major developed and emerging economies are struggling to contain the coronavirus almost 10 months after it first emerged. The pandemic is creating a class of new poor across East Asia and the Pacific, with 38 million more people expected to sink into poverty in 2020. That's according to the World Bank. Bloomberg reports that the triple shock of the pandemic, the containment measures and the global recession mean the region will grow only 0.9% this year, which is its weakest expansion since 1967, and poverty will increase for the first time in 20 years. Germany will face more than 19,000 new COVID-19 cases a day by the end of December if the current trend in infections isn't halted. That's according to Chancellor Angela Merkel. The country recorded about 11,000 cases last week. Bloomberg says the country must act quickly to avoid the same rapid rise in cases that has been seen in neighbouring countries such as France, which has been reporting an average of about 12,000 cases each day. A Conservative Party rebellion against Boris Johnson's emergency coronavirus powers is gaining momentum after opposition parties signalled their support. The House of Commons plans a vote on Wednesday on renewing legislation that allows ministers to impose new rules to combat the pandemic without first seeking parliamentary approval. But a growing band of Tory rebels want to amend the law to put a check on the government's power. Moscow has started to reopen temporary hospital wards after daily coronavirus infections in the Russian capital soared. Hong Kong's latest coronavirus wave is showing signs of subsiding after months of social distancing measures. Diageo says it expects business in July to December to improve versus the first six months of the year. This is because bars and restaurants reopened following the coronavirus lockdowns. India's coronavirus infections crossed the six million mark as the outbreak accelerates through the world's second most populous country. Infections rose by more than 80,000 and now stand at just over 6 million, according to data released by the Health Ministry. Beijing is urging companies to stop importing frozen food from countries with serious coronavirus outbreaks. The government has been investigating imported meat, seafood, packaging and containers as a potential source of COVID-19 since June. Coronavirus vaccines now in development are likely to be partially protective, but will not prevent everyone who is inoculated from becoming infected. That's according to Scott Gottlieb. Former Commissioner of the US Food and Drug Administration. About 40 universities around the UK have had reports of coronavirus cases, and thousands of students are self isolating as the new term begins. The BBC reports that the University of Aberystwyth is the latest to suspend face to face teaching because of COVID 19. The impact of COVID 19 on the lungs and the rest of the respiratory tract has been evident since the early days of the pandemic. The name of the virus that causes the disease. Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, Coronavirus 2, SARS-CoV-2, tells us as much. But scientists say that growing data suggests that the virus can also cause serious complications and damage to the heart, even in cases with mild or no symptoms. This is according to Eric Topol, the MD of Journal Science. He is a practicing cardiologist. He says that while no other human coronaviruses have been shown to impact the heart, people with SARS-CoV-2 have developed complications such as myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart, necrosis of the heart cells, which is cell death leading to injury, improper heartbeats, and even heart failure. The true prevalence of these heart manifestations is yet to be determined, says Topol. He points out that around 40% of SARS-CoV-2 infections occur without symptoms, and so far not enough imaging studies have been conducted in people who test positive for SARS-CoV-2 It is possible that SARS-CoV-2 is a generalist virus capable of spreading through a wide range of species. That's according to Connor Bamford, a research fellow of virology at Queen's University Belfast. He says that SARS-CoV-2 has already spread to cats, dogs, tigers and mink. It is possible, he says, that this virus could become an ever-growing threat. Next, we flash back to reports on the early deaths from COVID-19. Here's Alan Windy, Premier of the Western Cape, sharing the details with business founder Alec Hogg.
0: We'll be joined now by the Premier of the Western Cape, Alan Windy. Uh, Premier, it's been a tough day for you with the first deaths uh, of, from COVID 19, South Africa's first deaths from, of COVID 19 in your province.
2: Yes, no, very tough day. Um, uh, I, I remember vividly on the 11th of March when we actually had this showcase. We wanted to show the media that we were ready for Corona and we went down to Tigerberg Hospital and we were going to show them the, the lockdown facilities and the quarantine facilities and how ready we were. And on the way there, I got the message that we'd had our first positive case. And so when I walked into that hospital, the the, the sort of readiness um, changed to the first case, and I still remember after that saying, "Are we ready for the first death?" And uh, you know we were so consumed by by lockdown. Uh, we had three patients in ICU. Uh, we'd al- already had patients going into ICU and out. We knew we were around about 200 cases, and you know, you didn't even think it was going to happen. Lockdown was what we were focusing on, and this morning, I was waiting to hear about uh, how things had, the, the roadblocks had worked, and and how lockdown was happening. And I got the message of two deaths, not just one. And so, yes, a somber day, um, a day that really lands what 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 we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, we're doing it to actually mitigate uh, deaths, and uh, we want to you know, mitigate thousands of deaths, but uh, it really hit home today.
0: There were a couple of myths that were shattered by this. It's supposed to be only old men who die of COVID-19, and there was a 28-year-old who'd only Absolutely. been admitted yesterday. Uh, was this a surprise to you too?
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, that was the biggest surprise, I think. You know, you you assumed, and I mean, this is one of the problems, I think, when we assume too much. You assumed that it was going to be either someone who was elderly or someone who was immune compromised. We have a lot of people in our province who are HIV positive who are have tb and have diabetes and you, so you assumed it was either going to be someone from the vulnerable groups and uh, definitely not female because male is definitely also more vulnerable and less able to deal with this to female and right in the middle of this uh, uh, you know a 28 year old and a 48 year old woman uh, both women and uh, wow that actually just added to the to the power of the punch that uh, that we took this morning
0: were, were either of them at tigerberg
2: uh, yes, one's at Tigerberg and one is in, the private, uh, in a private facility. And yeah, as you say, the, the, she came in last night. And um, in actual fact, uh, it was one of those things where the doctors have clinically signed it off as COVID, but we actually didn't even have a positive test on the 28-year-old. So we've got a confirmed COVID, 48 years old, and I have 98% certain covid year old women but uh, that test still to come in but uh, everybody in the medical field are are certain that both of these are COVID cases.
0: Do you have any others uh, who've been hospitalized in the province?
2: So yes we had three yesterday and we've got seven today um, and hospitalised doesn't always mean that you stay there, but uh, you know, obviously three to seven. And yesterday, three. I wasn't even worried about uh, whether anybody was going to be on, uh, you know, getting closer to to death door. And and uh, this shows you how quickly things move. And I mean, yesterday we were sitting under under two hundred, and now we're on two hundred and sixty cases by two p.m. today. So you can also see the spread of the virus. Uh, is and the contagion of this virus is is so strong and uh, so virulent. It just it's, it, it takes your breath away every single day when you see these numbers. And and that's why uh, I'm so in support of this lockdown, and we've got to take it seriously, and we've got to measure the 21 days, and it could even go longer than the 21 days, especially if you look at what's happening in other parts of the world.
0: The lockdown is not working particularly well in parts of Teng. How is it going in Western Cape?
2: No, we've also got our problems here, definitely in a number of towns and in another number of parts of the city. People are just carrying on as if uh, there's no change. So at the 10 o'clock meeting I had today, we'd already had 52 roadblocks, 51 arrests, but definitely insufficient. And uh, we've, this afternoon again, uh, got between military saps, our metro police, and our traffic police uh, roping them in as well, that we've got to get out there to put a lot more pressure on citizens who don't realize the, the enormity of, uh, of what we're facing as a society. Um, so uh, I really want more arrests if people are not going to adhere. And the second thing is obviously people can go out to get groceries, to go and buy, you know, get from chemists or pharmacies and as well get medical care. That's the only reason you need to be out of your home. And we've found long queues at some of our shopping centers. So we need to actually have a look at mitigating measures there because people also aren't adhering to the one and a half meter spacing. So, yes, we've still got some work to do. Day one of the lockdown. I'm not too unhappy, although I would have liked to have seen it across the board. everybody staying at home. But I think generally uh, fairly good in the region, but obviously those hotspot areas, we've got to make sure we up our game and there'll be more military coming into the region over the next two days and uh, making sure that, uh, that we're dealing with this. And my plea always is to all of society is it's all of our responsibility to mitigate the risk. Uh, we've got our first two deaths. The risk is that we move to thousands of deaths, and that's why we're doing what we're doing. And we need everyone to take co-responsibility in, in dealing with this.
1: Coming up, why COVID-19 data used to inform government policy has ignited heated debate, with some insights from Nick Hudson of the think tank Panda, which is an independent group of actuaries, mathematicians and other professionals. He was speaking to Alec Hogg, Biz news founder.
0: Nick, on your screen now, you can see a graph there that I've actually pulled from Kevin Lengs' report about weekly deaths from all causes. And as you can see, there's a very distinct increase in the deaths in South Africa. Now, if one has a look at the forecasts and projections that you're talking about, and what the South African Medical Research Council is saying, from their side, these excess deaths, as we call them, are a result of COVID-19. From your side, which I found very interesting, You don't believe that it's actually COVID-19 that is causing excess deaths, but the lockdown itself. Just take us through that argument.
3: I think to be fair to the SAMRC, they did correct, in their initial report, they did have the somewhat ambiguous wording where it said COVID-related deaths, you know, not being too specific about whether it was people contracting the disease or affected by things like unavailability of treatment for other diseases or suspension of treatments for tuberculosis or HIV or things like that. So it's a slightly ambiguous wording, and we asked them to correct it, and they have subsequently done so. know, the jury's out, I guess, is what would be fair to say as to whether any of these deaths that are not recorded as coronavirus deaths are in fact from coronavirus or from the consequences of lockdown. We've also asked them to provide age-based breakdowns so that we can see, because if there's suddenly children dying or 25-year-olds dying, then you know for sure that those are not coronavirus deaths and that we're actually starting to grapple with lockdown deaths. But I don't even think that getting that information is going to be required because, you know, the Western Cape is now already more than a third off its peak. It peaked more than a month ago, probably five, almost six weeks ago. And as its epidemic continues to decline, if those excess deaths stay there, then they are most definitely not coronavirus deaths and they are our first lockdown deaths. And you'll remember the whole Panda journey started with us saying, well, hold on a minute, people. What we're forgetting here is it's not a trade-off between lives and money. That's a silly way of looking at it. Money mediates life. You know, It's just a transaction in the middle between the work you do and the food that you eat. And the main thing wrong with these models is not the number of deaths they're predicting from coronavirus, which we thought was wrong anyway, but that they don't take into account the number of deaths, loss of life that will result from plunging the economy into a multi-year depression, especially in a developing nation like our own, where so many people don't have big reservoirs of savings and where we don't have a big welfare safety net.
0: Explain that, because a lot of people look at that graph and say, well, there it is. That's evidence that COVID-19 is being underreported, as often happens in third world. But there are more people dying than there were in the past. So there is more to this COVID-19 story than what we've been told. However, on your side, you're saying that a lockdown actually causes deaths. Now, I've read your reports. I know your argument. But just explain that to those who haven't read it yet.
3: So it's long been understood that there's a strong relationship between your morbidity and mortality and your level of income, and that's visible at many levels. So wealthier nations have longer life expectancies. Pretty much everybody knows that. But even within nations, if you're an insurance company and you're trying to price a life insurance product, for many decades, probably even for more than 100 years, there are that insurance companies have observed, that people in different income categories have different mortality rates. And, you know, the idea is if you drop a couple of notches in your income and that's what's happening here. We saw today that formal sector salaries have fallen by 20 percent across the board. You know, Mm -hmm. these are very meaningful impacts on a society. And what comes with that, that level of destitution and worsening nutrition and stress and all those things is a higher mortality rate. So that's how this manifests. We weren't specific in that first report about the precise mechanisms, but other researchers have been quite recently. You know, Xavier Marty and uh, Glenda Gray, and more recently Prof. Slim put out papers just warning. You know, look at the look at what's going on in TB, look at what's going on in HIV. It doesn't take much in terms of a drop off in treatment rates and so on to lead to a quick deterioration in those cases that they're managing. Well all I would say, you know, yes, I know there are people out there who want to be able to say, look, we weren't panicking for nothing. And they will go as hard as they can and fight as hard as they can to argue that those excess deaths are all coronavirus related and it has nothing to do with lockdown. We think they're naive. We think that in a couple of weeks, it'll become clear. And as I say, the province to watch is the Western Cape, because within weeks from now, the coronavirus curve will have dropped off to negligible levels. And if those excess deaths are hanging around, then you've got your answer. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News.
1: A charity based in White River in Pumalanga called Pediatric Care Africa has been stepping in to help children. A charity based
4: in White River Mpumalanga, called Pediatric Care Africa says calls to them from parents who can't get proper care in hospitals during the COVID-19 pandemic have increased substantially. The founder of the organization is Dr. Andre Hutton, who returned to Africa and later South Africa after studying and working in the US and Europe for decades to start the charity that provided medical assistance to children in vulnerable positions. Dr. Hutting told Business that they were not only receiving calls from the Mpumalanga province. He said he was also worried that money from international donors to South Africa had dried up because of corruption.
5: Not only Mpumalanga, I, I suspected so, because we get calls from all over South Africa, but I can, I can speak uh, from our province here. There's a lot of families that phone you and says, look, I can't get my child into hospital. And if they do get into hospital, they're not seen by a doctor. They lay there for days and days and days, and there's no doctor coming to see them. But to get a specialist to see children is virtually uh, unheard of. So we get a lot of calls from, from desperate mothers asking us for help, even though the child is already in a government hospital, which I think is not the, the way a child should be treated. And then, of course, we can't interfere in a government hospital. We can't go and fetch a child. That is illegal and immoral we will be basically breaking the law so and then uh, if the children are discharged from the hospital then of course we can take them to a private doctor to be seen and or a private hospital to be seen yes it is a it is a major problem
4: dr hutton how many of these calls do you get every week
5: Oh, many, 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 many. But we know after we get called, and that is only a fraction. I mean, if everybody knows our telephone number, there are many, many of them. I mean, we have stories, endless stories of people that's gone to hospitals 6, 8, 12, 15, up to 72 times and not got any treatment, that they need specialist treatment. To see a GP, that seems to be a problem, but to see a specialist, For example, if you need to see a specialist ophthalmologist or uh, orthopedic surgeon or anything like that, it seems to be very, very difficult for the the people to actually get to see these people.
4: So are you finding that you're getting far more calls now during the COVID-19 period of people in need with related to children and injuries and children and malnutrition?
5: Yes, a lot. We have an enormous amount of of calls that we're receiving now, sometimes 40 a week, especially in the beginning, not only for food. Also, we have, of course, the GBV violence, the gender-based violence. The family is locked up in the house, and there's a lot of violence there. And also the the violence towards children has escalated dramatically in the areas we work in. And then, of course, the hunger. The children just did not receive any For a long period of time, they do now again, for a long period of time, about two and a half months, they don't receive any food from the feeding programs that the government is supposed to supply them. Uh, And that also helped to make the parents much more violent. They had to stop smoking because smoking was banned. If you put an already stressed and poor dad in a house with seven children and he's not allowed to smoke, he's not allowed to leave the house and there's no food, violence is sure to follow. So we do have that problem as well. But our major concern here is definitely, in my opinion, is that uh, people don't have reasonable access to medical care in a state hospital. And if they do have, the medical care is definitely substandard by far.
4: So your charity, Paediatric Care Africa, not only concentrated on getting children medical care during COVID-19, you also started feeding people.
5: We feed the children with special food that is growth-stunted uh, and that that's left by the moms and dads. And we feed about 350 of them every month before COVID. With COVID, everything went for uh, upside down. Of course, our mandate says um, if there's a national disaster, we do not discriminate between adults and children. So we also had to feed adults, which we did. We fed 500 families twice a month every two weeks. That's about two and a half thousand people. And we, we dished out during COVID just over 80 tons or the equivalent of 250,000, 350 gram meals. Sure. So that's, but that's unusual. That is not our normal thing. We're not a feeding organization.
4: Do you think the situation is getting better?
5: The food situation, definitely so, yes. The school feeding programs is back up and running now for a little while, uh, and the kids have been going back to school, so yes, that is definitely happening at the moment. The medical situation, as far as the government hospitals are concerned, I'm afraid not. If you listen to the complaints of the population, it is definitely getting worse and not better.
4: Do you find that people still open their, well, hearts first of all, but their wallets to, to support NGOs like you?
5: Yes and no. Overseas people, not. Unfortunately, we have developed a reputation as a, a crime country. After Nigeria, we have probably have the worst reputation now in the world, as far as crime is concerned, or corruption and, and fraud. Many of the overseas people know, keeping in mind my children live overseas, my parents and law live overseas, or my friends live overseas. And they all feel that we don't feel comfortable in sending money to NGO and South Africa. Because a lot of NGOs are unfortunately also turned out to be a little bit, well, crooked, to put it mildly. But we have a trust issue as far as foreign donors, are, and we desperately need them. But we have in South Africa, we have uh, people like Pick and Pay and Spar and, and those people. I mean, they are giving generously and they have been giving generously, not only to organizations like myself. I mean, we are small. You know, they've been giving And they still are. Uh, We're actually getting a donation this week, a food donation uh, again. So, yes, they are giving. Maybe not in the quantities they gave in the beginning, but they certainly haven't stopped giving or caring. But I'm very, very concerned about the fact that we we really battle to get any donations from, from overseas, and I can well understand it. You know, the only thing you read in the newspaper is that this money was stolen, that money was stolen, it's a never-ending cycle. And then you have um, the odd people like ourselves that, you know, really try. And then, of course, I mean, the guy in the U.S. doesn't know I'm a good guy. He just knows I live in South Africa.
4: This is Linda van Tilburg for Burs News.
1: Next, our partners at The Wall Street Journal investigate how people are coping with getting infected with COVID-19 for a second time. Scientists in Hong Kong reported last month what many had long suspected could happen.
0: Someone who had recovered from COVID-19 caught the coronavirus again. Since then, about a dozen cases of reinfection have been reported worldwide. These cases demonstrate that a natural infection doesn't lead to lasting protection and that the pandemic could persist in the human population. Bloomberg News senior editor Jason Gale talked to health experts about what this means for our ability to stop the virus and to produce an effective immunisation.
6: Anecdotes of people being infected by the coronavirus twice have appeared in the media since at least February, but these cases weren't proven. To demonstrate reinfection, Scientists have to isolate the microbial culprit each time, check its genetic fingerprint, and show that each infection was caused by a different virus. Scientists in Hong Kong reported the first confirmed reinfection almost a month ago. I asked an infectious diseases physician who's worked on a lot of outbreaks how we should interpret that finding.
7: I'm Dr. Tom Frieden, President and Chief Executive Officer of Resolved Save Lives, and former director of both the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and commissioner of the New York City Health Department. Well, first, we're continuing to learn more every day. But it's clear now that reinfection can happen. How often it happens and what the implications are for both natural infection and vaccine-induced immunity really are still unclear. Reinfections have now been confirmed
6: in Asia, Europe, and North and South America. But all up, these cases probably number less than a dozen, which is reassuring,
7: right? Globally, we've certainly had more than 100 million infections now. If we haven't seen a lot of reinfection, it must be rare. Or you can say, you know, we're really not looking. And until we look, we're not going to find. Uh, I think most of us believe that there is some level of immunity for some period of time in some people but those are very vague uh, qualifiers is some 10% or 80% and really until we get better data we won't know.
6: This first case reported by doctors at the University of Hong Kong occurred in a 33-year-old IT worker who had a mild case of COVID-19 in March. Last month he was screened for the coronavirus at the airport after he returned from a work trip to Europe. The man didn't have any symptoms, so it was no doubt a surprise when the test came back positive. The fact that he was infected without symptoms suggested to some scientists that his memory immune response prevented any symptomatic disease. In other words, that natural infection protected him from getting the cough, sore throat, fever and headache he experienced four and a half months earlier, but it didn't prevent him being infected again. I asked Tom, is this what we might expect from a subsequent infection, with the
7: SARS-CoV-2 virus. Well, one theory is that you're not likely to get severe disease twice. There is a reported case of someone who had mild disease the first time and then moderately severe disease the second time, and someone else who had moderately severe disease the first time and mild disease the second time. And the theory here is that it's the more severe disease that's more likely to result in protective antibodies. We know that there are some people who have very mild disease who don't seem to mount an antibody response and that may correlate with being able to get infected again. It also
6: seems antibodies don't always stick around that long. Last Thursday, researchers at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center published a study in which they found more than half of the healthcare workers who'd been infected with SARS-CoV-2 and had detectable antibodies in early April didn't have detectable antibodies two months later. The researchers said they didn't know whether the decline in antibodies increases risk of reinfection and disease. It's at least helping us understand what the limitations of immunity against COVID-19 might be.
7: I think it's unlikely that immunity to COVID is going to be as dramatically effective as, say, immunity to measles is. If you get measles naturally once in your life, you will in all likelihood never get it again. Uh, In contrast, if you get influenza or malaria or lots of other conditions, uh, you may get them again, but perhaps less seriously. We really don't know at this point enough about COVID, but what has emerged is that um, certain antibodies, known as neutralizing antibodies, do appear uh, that they may be protective. And that's why we're hopeful that vaccination may be possible. But until that's proven, uh, that's just a theory.
6: There's a possibility that immune protection against the coronavirus might be cumulative. The more times our immune system sees the virus, the better and faster it could be at thwarting it. Tom says we don't know that for sure, though.
7: Well, there's something called an anamnastic response, where when someone is exposed again and again to a pathogen, It strengthens their immune system. That's one theory. But we really don't know what the reality is with COVID. What we do know is that there's a wide variety of illness. Some people get infected and it's quite mild. Other people get infected and they can get severely ill or die. And we're not sure what the difference is. One of the key
6: questions around reinfection is whether someone who has caught the virus again is capable of transmitting it. Tom pointed to one example that indicated someone could be infectious, and another example that suggested they might not be.
7: At this point, um, there are theories, but no proof. For example, someone who's had a mild infection before and has very little immunity may behave just the same as someone who is infected for the first time. In contrast, someone who was very ill and has a high level of neutralizing antibody may indeed reduce their viral load and be less infectious. It's something that we need to figure out. So what do these reinfections
6: mean for our ability to reach herd immunity, where the virus's potential to spread is mitigated by a high level of immune protection in the community?
7: All bets are off still. Um, The likelihood is that herd immunity is going to involve uh, well over half of the population getting infected, uh, but there are still many unknowns. One thing that's important to keep in mind is that herd immunity is not a dichotomy. It's not herd immunity on off. The more people who are immune in a community, the slower the virus spreads. What is certainly the case is that in all likelihood, getting to herd immunity for COVID in the US would require an infection rate of something like 60%. Currently, we're at about 15%. We have 200,000 deaths, so in all likelihood, getting to herd immunity in the U.S. would involve another 600,000 deaths. We're talking about more than uh, almost any war in U.S. history. Where does all
6: this leave vaccines for COVID? Dr. Chip Schooley, a professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at UC San Diego School of Medicine, says we have to be careful about going down the AIDS vaccine hole.
8: As you remember, we were going to have an AIDS vaccine in 1986. <laughs> and we never got one, but we've done pretty well with AIDS. And we did it uh, with drugs and we did it with behavioral changes. And we may be in the same boat with, uh, with COVID. I mean, these reinfections uh, have to give you uh, pause about thinking that you can do better with a vaccine than you can do with natural infection.
6: Chip says previous research with vaccines suggests that the immunity isn't long, and it may not be the silver bullet many of us, me included, are hoping it will be.
8: That's why I think it's important to um, try to um, optimize non-vaccine interventions. Um, and get back to business. I think we really have to get on with it about how to operate in in the COVID era where the virus is kind of going to be looking over our shoulder for a while to come.
6: There's so much we don't know about the coronavirus, including our ability to produce a safe, effective, and durable immune response with a vaccine. But there are things we do know we can do to stop the pandemic. While we push ahead with developing vaccines, we also have to develop better treatments and keep practicing physical distancing, hand washing, mask wearing, and everything else we can to prevent infections.
4: Inside COVID 19, News.
1: We've saved the best for last in this Inside COVID 19 podcast. In this next clip, you will hear inspirational advice from Discovery co founder Adrian Gore on how the most creative, world-changing ideas can emerge at times of great negativity.
9: Think in a much broader way about the potential bad things that can happen, but I think more importantly the potential good things that can happen out of COVID. I I would argue that certainly in my journey, I've tried to always do that in the the context of our organisation, try not to think necessarily linearly, but think about plausibility, possibility in an unbounded way. And I think you should think about this in in a post-COVID world. So a few points I'd like to make, these are common themes, but just to add a few points to some of the possible futures that we may face. And this is predicated on a fairly optimistic view that will muddle through this economic uh, difficult time. The first one is the concept of a world of we versus I. Uh, there was a fantastic article you may have read by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs in The Guardian just, uh, I think, a week or two ago. where He makes the, the factual point that whenever societies are prosperous, they become very self-interested. People become focused on the I. When societies get into difficulty, the World War, the Great Depression, we become a collective. It's about we, and that's, that's a healthy thing, But we think about we in a, in a very collective way. And if you go through history, you'll find that whenever there's been great disruptions of negativity, the World War II, the Great Depression, some amazing collective things have happened. The NHS in the UK was formed in 1948, post the Second World War. The New Deal was formed by Roosevelt just after or during the Great Depression of the 30s. So it's during these times that we, we become a we, we become far less focused on the eye and far less self-interest. That's a great opportunity for us. Rabbi Sachs talks about five levels of we that he hopes remain after the, in the post-COVID world. The first is kind of the we of global human solidarity. It's a remarkable time. All of us around the world are experiencing the same things. I've been on calls and meetings today with people in China, with people in, in the U.S. We all discuss the same thing. They have the same fears, the same grief, the same concerns we are experiencing similar kinds of lockdown experience. So for the first time, you have this kind of global solidarity around what we're experiencing. It's, it's, it's of course tragic, but at the same time, we are in this thing together and you feel part of a, a profound collective. He also makes the point, I think beautifully, about the we of humility. That no matter who you are, no matter what your resources are, your technology you employ, where you live, this one little virus has cut us to our knees collectively. We're on our knees and we're in this thing together. And then he talks about the collective we of hope, that as a collective, we need to have hope. And I do think there's something about a world of we that is, of course, is much, much better than a world of I. And I think in the South African context, if you think about the New Deal and about things like the NHS, what will we do in this time? I think leadership needs to think about poor people in a different way. We need to try and change structures in a way, to change levels of inequality. And hopefully, if we can do something from what's happened here, I think that will be a good thing. And then the second issue of plausibility, rather than probability, is South Africa itself. I think that our president has done remarkably well. I was chatting to a dean of one of the public schools of health uh, in the U.S. who was telling me that, uh, in their view, our president and our government has been in the top five of how they dealt with COVID-19. And to a large extent, if we get through the economic issue, our country could emerge. This is a relative issue of competitive in a good space, in an optimistic space. So chatting to a colleague in Germany, a fantastic business leader, made the point to me, if you look at how Germany has dealt with COVID-19, very, very good healthcare system. Death rates are, are low. They've done a good job. They may emerge in a very competitive space relative to other countries. And I hope South Africa can, can do the same. I don't mean to make light of a tragic situation, but I guess that if you manage this well, our esteem could be lifted. Our optimism could be lifted and we could come out of this hopefully uh, in a strong place. It's not implausible. And so in the realm of plausibility, I think that is a future we should hope for.
1: And that brings to close your Inside COVID-19. Until next time.
0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.